Anyway, take our Bibles this morning and go, go with me to Matthew chapter 12 as we turn there. Some would say this, greater love hath no pastor than this, that he would lay down his pulpit to another person. That's kind of nice, huh? Uh, but when I think about that, I do think about the kindness of the Grahams, and we've known them for, for many, many years, and just the blessing they are. Uh, every summer, uh, as we get to see them, it's always a delight to be able to see them, and then through the years to see their own kids. Uh, and, and even at some point, I remember, it was, I think, last... Was it this last January, January before that? Um, maybe it was actually August. Uh, we were in Arden, North Carolina, and uh, we were ministering at a church there in Asheville, basically. And, uh, and I look up, and I see one of the Grahams. And uh, so it's super exciting to see that as well. Matthew chapter 12. This week, we're looking forward to what God will do in our hearts and our lives, but let's focus in on the scriptures here this morning. Matthew 12, verse 38 says this. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, He said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When I think about the words of Jesus here, you see this warning from him. And as he gives this warning, I would challenge you to consider this God, the God of mercy, and that you would heed the warning as well. Why in the world did he talk to them this way? It's kind of like a, a struggle. They're saying, hey, show us a sign. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, like, what in the world did we say wrong, you know, by asking for a sign? And at first glance, it may look that way, but as we dig into this, we'll see even more. But let's pray and ask God's blessing together. God, I want to thank you so much for my friends here today. I pray that you would... Stir our hearts. You give us a, a passion for your word and for your ways. And God, I pray that we would be about your work as believers. What I realize, not everybody who comes to a church like this, that this would be in Christ. There would be some who would clearly know that they're not saved yet. They're not Christians yet. Some may even think that they are Christians, but their life screams something far different, and maybe they have a false understanding of the gospel. And then we have some in, this, in the church that clearly are born from above. They have been saved. Lord, we all need to, to hear from you. We ask, God, that you would stir our hearts, that you would use this message to, to uh, change us into the image of Christ and to those who are without Christ, that you would save them. I pray, God, today that we, we would see you pouring out your blessing upon upon the preaching of your word. Thank you that you used the foolishness of preaching to bring people to repentance. So God, use that work. Lord, I pray in my own heart and life that you would stir me and use me now in a very special way for the next moments as we focus in through the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. If I say the date April 15th, what comes to your mind? Taxes. Well, man, you guys are a bunch of downers, okay? Yeah. Now, actually, that's probably true. When you think of April 15th, that'd be the normal thought for the American, you know, uh, person here, you know, so you go, okay, I get that within our culture, tax day. But did you know that something 
Something happened a little over 100 years ago on that same day. It was early in the morning of April the 14th. I would say it actually, um, it was maybe you could say late in the evening, 11.39 p.m., almost, almost midnight on the 14th, where the Titanic, the great passenger cruise liner that we're familiar with, hit an iceberg. It struck the iceberg, and it was two hours and 40 minutes later where that ship actually sank killing right around 1,500 people. I mean, it was a shock, and it sent shockwaves, around, shockwaves really around the world, um, because if you notice of, of how world-renowned this ship would have even been. When you think about the ship of the Titanic, it was a big ship. I don't know. I mean, I know some of you just came back from the Ark. How many of you went to see the Ark and the Ark Encounter? Now, you know that's not the official Ark, but you know what I mean? That's a replica. Okay, just so you know. All right. And that's pretty amazing, isn't it? I think one of the biggest things that I remember going through that is thinking, you know, you're, you're on like maybe floor three and maybe, maybe one of your friends or, you know, family members would have been on, you know, floor one and then you're trying to get in touch with them. How would you do that? I mean, you're, you're making your way and then you go down to floor one. Meanwhile, they're on floor two and then you've got animals and all that. <laughs> I'm thinking, you might not see anybody. You might be the only person with animals all day long, you know, if you're not careful with that. Interesting how huge that ship was. Well, the Titanic was almost 900 feet long. It was 882 and a half feet long. I mean, if you ex- exclude the end zones of the football field, it's almost like three football fields. I mean, that's pretty amazing in length. Almost 100 feet wide at 92 and a half feet wide. And from the base to the top of the stacks, it went up 175 feet in the air. I mean, that's, that's pretty radical of a massive, massive ship. At full capacity, it weighed 52,000 tons. I mean, that's heavy. And then obviously, it carried 2,224 2, people on its maiden voyage. So this is a massive floating style of city. I don't know how many people live in, um, in Pine Island. Do you know the population of Pine Island? 3,000? Okay, so, so something similar to there on that boat, when you think about it, that's pretty crazy to think about. Actually, the beauty of that was it, it was a beautiful ship. It had a swimming pool on it. Um, I noticed that no one really flinched, you know, with that. You're kind of like, yeah. I mean, because we think of our modern day and go swimming pool, of course, you know. I mean, you've got wave pools. You've got lazy rivers, zip lines, you know, climbing walls, driving ranges. I mean, you've got all kinds of stuff in our modern day. But this is back a little over 100 years ago. So remember, this would have been in 1912. So in 1912, there was a swimming pool on board with a dining saloon and four elevators. Again, that's kind of like, wow, you know? But again, now we're like, eh, you know, but no big deal. Back then, though, you could get a parlor suite, and that parlor suite would cost you $4,350. Now, for some of you, you're like, eh, chump change, Jeremy. You know what I mean? Not for me, okay? That's, that's, that's a lot of money. But actually, that's back then $4,350. In our modern-day equivalency, it would be somewhere close to $120,000 for a parlor suite. Now that's pretty outstanding, 120 grand. And then some even said this, that the ship was so big that God himself couldn't even sink this ship. Well, you better be careful what you say. But the other side of it is you start to look at historically who said that, and you kind of, kind of run up with this, eh, not quite sure. But that was the mentality of the culture with that ship. I mean, so big. I mean, there's no way that could ever go down. God himself could even sink that ship. So that clearly was the mentality. And actually, I would look at you this morning and say, the ship did not have to go down that day 
it actually had received six different warnings. And on the last warning, the, the radio operator replied back. He said this, shut up, shut up, I'm working. You could say just as the Titanic had warnings, we too, as people, have, have warnings from God about future judgment clearly laid out in Scripture. And I would say this because God in his mercy and his kindness warns people. That sure shows how merciful and kind he is because we don't deserve that. We deserve the judgment. He does. We don't deserve the warnings, but in his goodness and mercy, that's what he does. He's kind. When I think about that, I think about you know your own house where you live. Could you imagine your neighbor next door's house caught fire? And as it's catching fire, you realize people inside are not moving quickly because obviously they don't know that it's on fire. And, they, and they, maybe it started on the back of the house, you know, and something, some electrical thing. But, but clearly you run over and start banging on their door and say, get out, get out, your house is on fire. Now they might say, why are you yelling at me? What's your problem? You know, and you're like, no, 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 your house is on fire, get out. And then let's say they get out and sure enough, the house is consumed. The truth is those people that you yelled at that thought you were mad at them, maybe, actually come to you with a big hug and saying, thank you, with tears in their eyes, you saved my life. It would be kind to warn people. It would be awful to sit back and go, wow, I hope they get out. And what you see is God, the God of mercy, who sends a warning. And my question to you is this morning, will you heed the warning from God as we see this? So as we look at this in verse 38, this is a warning. Notice this. It says, And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, I would say at first glance that that's not a bad question. Or that, hey, hey Jesus, or a demand. Could you show us? I mean, if you really are who you say you are, just like let us know that. Because I don't want to randomly trust in some kind of person that calls himself Messiah. I mean, would you? Clearly, no. I want some evidence. I want some, I want some reality here. You know, again, no one in their right mind would ever just say, well, okay, I guess I'll follow this guy. Okay, that, that would be stupid. So the truth is, is, is hey, show us a sign. That's not a, a bad question, is it? I, when I think about Scripture, can I tell you, God and his mercy and his kindness does show us things all the time. But I want to pull you back to kind of show you something that's actually found in chapter 11. Go to chapter 11 with me for a second and look at verse 2. I want you to get the context of what this is, what's going on here. Because in chapter 11 and verse 2, it says this. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, when John heard in prison, so John the Baptist at this point in, historic, in, his, in history, in his life, he's in prison for preaching. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of, of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or do we look for another? Now, wait a second here. This is, this is the same John the Baptist, who's really the cousin of Jesus, who's, who's miraculously born as well, but Jesus is very miraculously born, as virgin born. And yet the cousin, what does he say when Jesus comes his way? I mean, he, he announces this. He's the forerunner. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he calls the Christ. And then as he baptizes Jesus, he even says, I'm not fit to baptize you. But no, this is what needs to happen to be accomplished. And so sure enough, he baptizes Jesus. And at that point, what happens? It's like a, it's almost like 
like a dove-looking kind of thing. It comes and then resides in and upon Jesus. And you hear the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son, you know. I mean, it's, I mean all of this. Why is he saying, are you the one? I mean, if you're not, do we, should we look for another? I think because, honestly, in his own mindset, Jesus would come. He would, he, would, he, would, he would set up his kingdom and rule and reign. But actually, that's not what would happen initially, would it? The Jewish mindset was, was wrong in this area, but yet in some midst of this, he's struggling in his own faith, it seems, though. Like, is, are you, is he really the one? I mean, is this, this isn't the way it's, I'm not supposed to be in prison, am I? You know, maybe he's struggling through that. But I would look at you and say, I'm actually thankful for his struggle because that just reminds us of humanity because we sometimes struggle, don't we? But notice this. Here's what happens. Jesus, in verse 4, answers them and said, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers, people with leprosy, are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You go tell John the Baptist what you're seeing and hearing. Just let him know. I mean, I think about that. I mean, sure enough, all these people are seeing all the miracles consistently done, but not just there. Go to, go to the same chapter, but look at verse 20. In verse 20, it says this. And he began to denounce the cities that were, that were most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So Jesus was doing miracles like upon miracles in these cities, mighty, mighty works. And he says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, the idea of hell there. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been, it would remain unto this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment than for the, for the land of Sodom than for you. So what, this is, this is a harsh rebuke. Why is he rebuking these cities like this? Because they're seeing works of God consistently, mighty works of God. I mean, of all the people being rescued from diseases and demons, I mean, even death, Jesus would raise people from the dead. This is amazing stuff. And they're not repenting. Their hearts are unwilling to turn to the one true God. They want their own way. That's the problem. So he's saying there's condemnation to them. And then you even go further and you see chapter 12. Look at chapter 12 and notice verse, verse 9. It says this, that he went on from there and he entered into the synagogue, as Jesus, on his journey. And a man was there with a withered hand. And he asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why did they ask him that? Look at that verse. So that they might accuse him. He said to them, well, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is, it than, value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. Now, wait a second. 
You know, a synagogue is a place of, of worship and even community. And so there's an element of you can imagine Jesus being there teaching in the synagogue, and then he gets that question. Hey, is it lawful to heal on Shabbat, on the Sabbath? So meanwhile, as they, they ask us, he says, well, I mean, think about this for a minute. Again, they do this because they want to trick Jesus. Now, can I just tell you something real quick? <laughs> you can't trick Jesus. That is impossible. I mean, he's creator God in human flesh. He made your brain, okay? You, you can't make that, you know? So that the whole point is this, is you can't trick him, but they're gonna try, you know? And every time they try to trick him, they always come up short. You cannot trick God, you know? It's like, <laughs> oh, good, real tricky, you guys. You know what I mean? Like, he knows your thoughts and intents of your own heart. Come on, you know? So here they are, they're trying to trick him, you know? Hey, is it lawful on the Sabbath? You know, will you rescue a sheep on the Sabbath, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> well, then it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Hey, you, come here. You know, and you can imagine this guy coming up, and he's standing in front of everybody. He's got this little withered hand, okay? Normal arm, not a normal arm, okay? Birth defect, probably, as you can think about that. As I think about, I think of just being at the wilds this summer. I was speaking at a camp in North Carolina, and sure enough, one of the kids said, hey, can you ride the giant swing with me? I said, sure. And meanwhile, you know, he's walking over there and, you know, with me, he wants to ride it, and he's, he's, he's got a prosthetic leg. He's got to take the leg off to ride with me, you know? I'm like, that's crazy, taking off your leg to ride, you know? This big old giant swing. It's like a zip line kind of thing, you know? And he's got this little arm, and then he's got a normal size arm, and he linked up because it's two people riding together, and they kind of pull you up and drop you down. I, and man, I had a great conversation. Man, it's an awesome kid, too. Like, he was just like, just a really neat experience. But I said, think about that. I think about this little hand that seems to be somewhat useless. It's like, what do you do with it? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Come here, buddy. He stands up there. Stretch forth your hand. I mean, in front of their own eyes. What do you think the guy's face looks like at this point? I mean, he's been unable to use this all his life, and all of a sudden he's like, I mean, he's probably going, yeah, you know, I guess, and everyone's eyes are all big. Everyone is so, uh, I mean, could you imagine maybe cheering and clapping? I mean, that's crazy. Right in front of our own eyes, we just watch this miracle happen. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Everyone's happy, happy, aren't they? No, not everybody. Actually, at the moment this happened, that is verse 14 of chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how they might destroy him. They tried to trick him. Now they want him dead. We need the right time, the right situation. He's going to die. That's their mentality. So as you look at this, interesting, not just that, verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, he withdrew from there, and then he followed him, and what did he do to those people? And he healed them all. <laughs> That's amazing. He constantly is doing so many miracle after miracles. And then you go look at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. 
he rescues his man. So the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? That is a reference to Messiah. Could this be the Messiah? I mean, who can do this except for the Messiah? Is this the son of David? Is this Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, well, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. This is not, he's not of God. He's like doing this with satanic power. And Jesus says, oh, really? If I'm doing this with satanic power, then who do your people cast out demons by? What power do they do that? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. You know, a kingdom divided against itself. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't make any sense. Like, you're mad, actually, in your own thoughts. I mean, you're just telling how stupid, in a sense, they are. So when you get to this point where now you're, you're standing before Jesus and you kind of think this might be a simple question, hey, Jesus, show us a sign. I mean, again, that's, the, that's verse 38. You know, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. You can imagine they want him dead. So when they say, teacher, even that's sarcastic. Hey, teacher, <laughs> won't you show us a sign? This is why the rebuke is so harsh. In one sense, you say, what are you talking about? Number one, in this message, and I'll, I'll make this quicker as we go through for sure, okay? Because you're like, ah, oh, freaking out. Okay, but here we go. Number one is this. This is a confrontation that begins with a sinful request. It's a sinful request. I even call it a stupid request because they're saying, hey, show us a sign. We want proof from you if you're really who you say you are. And yet you go, wait a second, Messiah, give us proof. <laughs> Jesus heals the sick. He, he makes the blind see. He can walk on water. He calms the storms with his own voice. He casts out demons. He feeds 5,000. If you include women and children within that, it would be some fifteen to 20,000 with five loaves and two fish. And he raises people from the dead. And you want proof. They didn't need proof. They needed humble hearts of repentance. They needed to repent, to turn from their sin and trust in Messiah. They didn't need proof, which is so interesting because we sometimes think if we just had proof, you know, if he just did some miraculous thing, you know, like three times in a night, you know, on Christmas Eve, you know, that we get the ghost of Christmas past and future and, you know, and, and wait a second, what are you talking about? And actually, that is what the rich, that's what the rich man thought too in Luke 16. What'd he say? He'd say, listen, you know, uh, please send Lazarus to come and dip the tip of his finger in some water and touch my tongue. I'm in torments in the flames. I mean, just, I want some relief in hell. I don't, please send him. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. Wherever you are when you die, that's where you, it's where you stay. Well, then if that's the case, then send him back from the dead to warn my brothers because I don't want them going to this place. No, that's not going to happen. They actually have Moses and the prophets. What does that mean? They have the Old Testament. They have the scriptures. If they don't hear the scriptures, they're not going to hear one coming back from the dead. Whoa, whoa, what do you mean? What is Jesus teaching you in Luke 16? That actually his word is far more powerful than a person even coming back from the dead because you know what? Jesus did raise a literal Lazarus from the dead and guess what? They wanted that guy dead again. Jesus raised from the dead. They wanted him dead again. The whole point is, what do they need? They need response of humility and actually repentance. Repentance and then faith in Christ. So what you see here, when they're asking for proof, this is a, this is a sinful request. They've had so much. And can I tell you this? When I think about our own culture, I will tell you there's so 
much revelation. When you look out, you can see creation clearly showing you there is a creator. Where'd the intelligent design come from? Can I just remind you, it's not from a big bang. Okay, that's like the dumbest thing to think about, you know? Big bang, explosion happens, and out pops order. What? Have you ever blown up anything? I mean, as a kid, I used to blow up firecracker, you know, with a firecracker, like, you know, like a, a mushroom or something, and go, you know, it's, it's fun, you know? You, maybe some of you adults with some tannerite or something, you know, yeah, that's so cool, you know? you think that'd be awesome. You don't get order out of chaos. How in the world could a big bang cause an ordered universe? That doesn't make any sense. And then if you ask the person, where'd the big bang come from? They go, I don't know, never thought about that. Well, well you should, you, you need to think, you know? You start looking at our culture, you can see this. That's called general revelation. And then God gives us very specific revelation. It's special. It's his word. And the truth is this is what brings people to faith in Christ as they hear the word of God, the gospel even being preached, who Jesus is, who God is, who we are, our need for Christ. I mean, this all comes through the scriptures. And if anybody is truly seeking, guess what God does? He provides a person. I think, of, I think of the New Testament. You think of Cornelius, who seemed to be an earnest, God-fearer, seemingly seeker, and what did God do? God said, well, then here's a person to come your way. And can I tell you also that mankind's heartbeat is not to pursue God. Actually, Scripture says we all go away, go astray. There's none righteous. We don't, even, we don't pursue him. We don't go that way. God, that's, so if you're here today and you're not in Christ and you're here, can I just tell you that's, that's pretty amazing. I'm glad you're here. That to me tells, you, tells me that God is at work. Would you respond to him? As you begin to consider this even true, hey, like, hey please show us a sign. We want a sign. Hey, you, you've got proof. That's Jesus' response. Number two, though, is this. Jesus responds with a scathing rebuke. Now, you know, as we see this scathing rebuke, we see it in verse, in verse 39. But he answered them, saying, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Wicked people want a sign. And he's saying that because they have seen so many signs and wonders. But no sign will be given to it, well, except one. Except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now are you, now are you catching why I gave you Jonah in the morning? Okay, so now you're like, oh, okay, okay. So, so Jonah, except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Look at Jonah. What do you mean, look at Jonah? Like, this is amazing because Jesus actually makes a connection. It, it, this is not Jeremy making a connection. Hey, I think it kind of seems like, you know. No, this is Jesus clearly saying, no, Jonah is going to point to Jesus, and it's, it's the idea of the resurrection. And he's clearly showing you that there. He said, go look to Jonah. Now, wait a second. Do you remember the story of Jonah? For some of you, you kind of missed out, you know. Maybe the breakfast was too good, and, you know, you're kind of making your way just kind of in here a little late, you know, or like that. But the truth is, is when you think about Jonah, it's not about a big fish, although we normally think of it that way. It's about a whale. You know, you open up a little kid's book, and what do you see? You just see it's like whale, and a whale, and a big fish, and a whale, and look over there, and a whale. No, it's not. It's actually about a big God who does use a big fish in a little part of that story. Now, it does make an impact, for sure, okay, but you 
Think about that. What happened? Jonah was told by God as a prophet to go to this wicked city of Nineveh and preach against it. The message that I give you. Okay. Instead of Jonah going about 500 miles northeast, he actually goes about, he goes the opposite direction. He goes southwest. And I'm not talking about the airlines. And he gets on a boat and he starts to make his way to a place to, to you know, and he's, he's fleeing literally like the, as far as he can go away. So it's like probably Spain area where he's headed, okay? But he's on the boat. It's he even pays the fare and he even tells the people at some point, maybe as he's paying the fare, he tells them, I'm running from God. Now, could you imagine being a pagan? You know, you're just like, okay, collecting the money, collect the money, and here's a guy, hey, here's, I'm running from God. And you're like, I don't care. Get, get on the boat next, you know, and you're collecting the money. But, he, but sure enough, he, they, 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 he's in the boat, and what does God do? He sends a raging storm. I mean, raging. I mean, the mariners think they're going to die. This is, this is raging. And what's crazy about this is guess where he is? Jonah is in the midst of the boat, he's in this, and he's doing what? He's sleeping. Hmm. Sleeping in a boat during a raging storm. Can you think of anybody else who slept in a boat during a raging storm? Yeah, it's interesting. It's not Jonah, it's Jesus. And yet what's interesting about Jesus, he's exhausted because he's been doing the very will of God, and that's why he can sleep that, I mean, that hard, in a sense, within a raging storm, and so he's exhausted. But here's Jonah, who's exhausted, but he's exhausted because he's gone on this long journey to run away from God. God sends a storm. They wake him up. Wake up, you sleeper. Don't you care that we perish? We're all praying. We're all praying to our gods. You know, why don't you pray to your God? I mean, we're having this ecumenical prayer meeting out here. No, you know, that's, that's what we're doing. You need to pray too. We're all going to die. I mean, you know, and he goes, well, I'll tell you the problem. You know, the problem is me. Remember, even they draw straws, basically. It's not like, you know, and it's like, and it's like, ooh, it falls on Jonah. Well, the problem is me. I told you before, I'm running from God. And they're like, what are you doing? And he says, well, here's the problem. If you just throw me over, Board, your woes will stop. What do you mean, throw you overboard? If you're the problem, go jump. Have you ever thought about that? That's kind of weird. Why do we have to pick you up and throw you over? But that mentality of the Jewish people would be not to take their life into their own hands. So you throw me overboard. Your woes will stop. They, they tried everything else until eventually they threw him over. And the moment he goes over, he goes down and down and down. And sure enough, as that happens, God commands then a fish to come. And, and when he goes down, what happens then is he goes into the water. It's like immediately, boom, the storm stops. Everything's calmed. They freak out. They go, clearly, this is of God. And this, and, and this was a prophet of God. And yet, what do they start doing? They start making vows to God, and they start doing sacrifices there in the, on the boat to, to turn to the one true God. You could say God sends a revival or a great awakening on that ship, and none of them were planning it that day. Same way, though, as he's in that belly of that fish for three days. Some even suggest maybe he really, did, he really did die and God rose him up from the dead. If he's kind of a picture of, of even that, I mean, maybe, maybe. We don't know. We just know at some point in the middle of that, and again, you can imagine being swallowed, okay? You think you're gonna die, but then all of a sudden, now, everyone do this for me real quick. Just, just swallow. Can you do that? Okay. That's Jonah going down. 
And then you can imagine that journey. Oh, 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 ah, until he finally gets to a spot within the, the, the belly, in the stomach. Um, how big was that spot? I mean, obviously it was big enough that he's alive. Was, it, was he able to sit up there in that, you know? I mean, you know, I mean, it's pitch dark. You couldn't, I mean, he's, he's in the belly under, in the sea. Like, again, there's enough air pocket. He's, he's able to breathe. Was, was it just big enough for his head? Was he, you know, was he able to move around? But the whole point is, I mean, am I, am I dead? I, I feel like I'm still alive. But then it's like, it's like but, but I'm, not in, I'm not, clearly I'm not in hell, but, but this is not heaven. <laughs> in the midst of all of that, he starts to pray and cry out to God. He gets to the point where he finally says, salvation is of the Lord and I will pay my vows. God, I'll do what you called me to do. And God says, okay, this prophet's ready. Now, whale or big fish, spit him up. Now, I'm not gonna say try that one, okay? okay? But this is interesting, spit him up on dry ground. Again, how does he get to dry ground? I mean, was this over near like the edge of a cliff where it spit out? Would he kind of come towards a, you know, the shoreline and maybe like there and then all of a sudden, I mean, this is a projectile vomit. I mean, he's, oh, and then he's on this. And now God says, now I'm telling you, go and preach to Nineveh the second time the message I tell you. And he says, okay. Now you can imagine, what did he look like? He looked awful. I mean, his clothes, I mean, you, you couldn't get the smell out of your clothes. You probably put on clean clothes, but you can't get the smell off your body, you know, which as much showers as you take. His hair was bleached, or did he even have hair left? I don't know, but he's all bleached. His skin's bleached, everything. He's been in stomach acid for three days. Now go and preach. And the message was real simple, loud and clear. In the midst of that, what happened to those people? They begin to hear the message they responded to the message, and I would ask this question to you. How much Bible did they have? How much revelation did the people of Nineveh have? Now let me ask you a question. How much revelation do you have? I mean, to think of our own culture with a smartphone within probably two or three clicks, easy, you can get the gospel and the answer if you really want it. But the heartbeat of mankind is they don't want it. And what's so interesting here are these people that hear the message that's six words long, that respond to it in humility, and God saves them. Do you think, Jeremy, that these are real people? Yes, I do, because Jesus preached them and taught it as real people, and how will, they, how will they actually be there in the judgment to condemn if they weren't for real? This is not a false story. This is a true story of a real person that got swallowed and spit up. And you go, well, Jeremy, you think that can really happen? I'd say yes. That's why in the last two to three years, there was a major headlines of a guy that did get swallowed and spit up almost like right away by a big fish. Kind of crazy, huh? But you think about this, this guy, that many, that many days, and it clearly points to this, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the man be, son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is he saying? He's saying Jonah is pointing to Jesus and the resurrection. I mean, the greatest sign that these people would see, they're like, you're going to get no sign from me because evil and wicked generations seek after a sign. And you keep seeing all these signs. You're going to get none from me, well, except for one. And it's going to be a sign of Jonah. What is he saying? And just not too long, what would happen to Jesus? He would be crucified and buried 
and three days later, raised from the dead. You want the greatest sign in human history, it's called the resurrection. So when you look at this, clearly look at Jonah because he points to Jesus and the resurrection, but then he even tells you to learn from the Ninevites. How do they respond to this? Because as you look at this closely, it says in verse 41, then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater something greater than Jonah is here. Wait a second, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. That's the key. When God starts working in your heart, what is the answer that you would humble yourself in genuine repentance? Repentance and faith. What is repentance? It's not a work that you do, you know, somehow earning favor with God. You're saying, I don't want my sin, but I'm turning to you, Jesus. I'm trusting in you. Now, when I say that the problem is this, the problem with mankind is the same problem. It's the sin problem. We have all sinned, and we all know that in this room. That's not a hard one for anyone. I don't think there'd be anyone in the room who would say, Jeremy, not me. I've never sinned. And we would all look at you and go, <laughs> liar, that's another sin. <laughs> we sin with our mouth, we sin with our life. We're actually born sinners. Did you know that? You go, <gasps> you know, you believe that, Jeremy? Well, if you don't believe it, clearly you've never had kids. Or you've never worked at a church nursery with a long-winded preacher. I mean, real quick, you'll find out kids are born bad. You know, mine, no, mine, no, mine, no, mine. You know, that's, that's Susie, you know, punching Johnny. You know, I don't know. It's like, we, we think about how, and then we don't teach our kids how to, do you teach them how to sin? Hey, here's how you do it. Here's how you lie. Let's practice lying. You don't do that. It's like, it's, because it's, it's innate. It's innate. It's in their nature. That's who we are. We sin. We break God's laws. That's who we are. We need to be rescued, though, because when you think about Jesus, you think about God, there is no sin. God is perfect. He's pure. You think of heaven, Revelation 21, nothing will enter into it that will defile it. It's perfectly pure. But the problem is you and I, we're not. We need to be rescued. This is why Jesus came. Messiah came because you couldn't save yourself. But I meet people who try to earn their way. They say, oh, well, I got to kind of, you know, you got to do good, Jeremy. Actually, your righteousness, the scripture says, is as filthy rags to God. It doesn't impress a holy God. You need God's righteousness. This is why Jesus came. If you could do it yourself, then why would Jesus need to come? That's the, if you could do it yourself, just getting baptized, you know, in front of people, sure, that'd be great, huh? If you could just kind of, you know, go to church, you're good out way and you're bad, it would kind of get you there. No, 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 because... Because his standard is perfection, and when you look at the moral laws of God, we've all come short, and yet we need a Savior. That's the whole point. We, we don't love God supremely, and we don't love people supremely either, like, or like we should before God. So the truth is, is we're sinners broken. And yet the people of Nineveh, with very little, they turn from their wicked ways, they turn to the one true God. Would God, you just have mercy on us. As you see this happening, though, you have this idea of look to Jonah because Jonah points to Jesus in the resurrection. Look, learn from the Ninevites. They repented with very little revelation. And then you have the last little thought is then, then listen to the queen of the south. What does she say or what happened there? Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, wait a second. Who's the queen of the south? What's her name? The queen of... Sheba. And remember the story? 
I mean, she hears about the wisdom of Solomon and she wants to know, is this even true? Months of a journey before we kind of pat ourselves on the back. Jeremy, I drove 30 minutes to come to church. You know, we're all proud of ourselves. And I say, really, that's really nice. In your air-conditioned car or your heated, you know, now you fixed your seats in the right spot to drive to here. Okay, wow, that's pretty great. This is like months of a journey where she could clearly die. But she does it. And she gets there and she starts asking, you know, like, could you imagine if he's the wisest person on all the earth? What, I mean, what kind of questions would you ask? You know, especially if she's a ruler. Hey, how, how do we set up, how do I better organize my kingdom to better produce and to better actually um, help our people? What about taxation? What about this? You know, I mean, really, like, how do you, how do, you do this? And, she's, and every answer he's getting, like, amazing answer he's given her, given her. And she's like, oh, wow, wow, that's amazing. And at some point, guess what would happen? Hey, what's that amazing structure right over there? Hmm. It's called the temple. Can I tell you about the God who we serve? Can I tell you about the God we worship? Can I tell you why we do the sacrifices? Can I let you know something? In the future, there will be a once-for-all sacrifice. What happens to the Queen of Sheba? How will she stand up in the judgment if she hadn't come to to know Messiah. And then you could think about this and go, well, this is pretty radical. And yet, what is he, what is he saying at the end of these phrases of, again? And then again, the long journey, again, you, you go, wait, okay, Jesus then concludes saying, something greater than Solomon is right here. This is, the, this is God in human flesh speaking to them at that moment. Something greater than Solomon, the greatest king of kings, is right there in front of them delivering the message. And they're saying, show us a sign, you know? Not just the greatest king, but if you look at verse 41, the very end, something greater than Jonah is here. The greatest prophet in all the world is here in front of you, giving you truth. And not just that, if you even backed up in that, in that phrase, you will see that in verse 6 of that same chapter. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Because he's the greatest sacrifice. He's the greatest part of his worship. He's prophet, priest, king, sacrifice, Messiah. This is Jesus. And I, again, how much effort do you pursue as a, as a believer, do you put in to get to know Jesus? Well, I don't really have time, Jeremy, to read my Bible. Kind of busy. Hmm. Hmm. So sure enough, a sinful request, a scathing rebuke. What should the response be? Number three, I would just simply say it requires a serious response. What should it be? Well, sinners who come to Christ, what should they do? They should reject the world's wisdom for God's wisdom. God, you're right and the world is wrong. And I'm, and I'm, I'm rejecting the world's wisdom because I'm, I'm embracing your truth. So, so they reject the world's wisdom for God's wisdom. They repent of their sins. It's, it's, I don't want my sins. I need you, Jesus, to rescue me and you alone. It's not my works. It's nothing I can do. I'm, tr- I'm trusting in you. Sure enough, that would mean they would listen. They would actually then, they would actually look by faith to Jesus. So rejecting the world's wisdom, they repent of their sins. They look by faith to Christ alone. What does that mean? They trust in him 
to believe in Jesus. Let me remind you, the demons believe and they tremble, but they're not going to heaven. It's not a mental belief in Jesus. It's a trusting in Christ as your Messiah. And they look by faith to Jesus. If, you ha- if this happens to you, then what happens at that moment? The sinner is made a saint by God. The moment of conversion, God gives you his righteousness and he takes away your sin. But the self-righteous, I mean, I'm good. I'm pretty good, Jeremy. What do they do? They reject God's wisdom for their own wisdom. Well, I think this, Jeremy. I mean, it's not biblical, but I think this. Instead of coming to the Lord in repentance, what do they do? They cover their sins because if you're not really repenting, you are covering them over. So they're kind of saying, you know, I'm not good at this and this. And, and so they're covering their sins. And they, instead of looking to Christ alone, they look to self. And the problem is in this, when this happens, in the end, if they die in this condition, the self-righteous will show themselves clearly to be sinners. Sinners. Not rescued because they never came to grips with their own sin. So in conclusion, how many of you know the name Erwin Lutzer? Anyone know that name, Erwin Lutzer? Okay, that's a name to, that would be good to be familiar with. He's written a lot of good stuff as a pastor in the past. Erwin Lutzer said this. He said, when I became pastor of the Moody Church in 1980, I knew one of the church rooms was named Harper Hall in memory of the Scottish evangelist who was on a journey to the Moody Church but drowned when the Titanic sank in April of 1912. So, so here he is, this evangelist, a Scottish evangelist, was making his way to the U.S., and he, he, he died in 1912. He said, only recently, however, did I learn the full story of this remarkable man. Harper's reputation as an evangelist was so well known, he was invited to speak at the Moody Church in 1910. Um, Lutzer says, I have in my possession a photocopy of a letter in his own writing, handwriting, which reads this, I have been in Chicago for three months God gave us a very precious and wonderful revival of continuous services each day and sometimes even more often. <laughs> Three months of meetings. Okay, now, Pastor, I'm not asking for that. Okay, that, could you imagine? Like, we're all excited. Like, over the next three days, please, people, please, it would be great to be here. You know, this is three months and sometimes more than once a day speaking for three months. And then he says this, he went on to say this, he had now been invited back to the Moody Church for another three months of meetings. And so it was John Harper, his sister, his six-year-old daughter, found themselves on the great ship, the Titanic. Well, where was his wife? She had previously died. So he's with his sister, he's got a six-year-old daughter. And it says this, survivors later reported as the Titanic began to sink, Harper admonished people to be prepared to die. He made sure his sister and daughter were in a lifeboat, even as he continued to share the gospel with whoever would listen. And when he found himself in the icy water with a life jacket floating near another man, Harper asked, are you saved? He asked the man. And the man desperately replied back, no, I'm not saved. And he says, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One report actually says Harper, knowing that he could not survive long in the icy water, took off his life jacket. He threw it to another person with the words, you need this more than I do. And moments later, Harper disappeared beneath the water. It was four years later when there was a reunion of the survivors of the Titanic. Now, you can imagine that, okay? Hey, I mean, this all happened. Hey, next year we're going to have a a time to get together for a reunion. Uh, It's going to take time for people to even consider what that tragedy is going to be lifelong in their brain. I mean, 
So four years later, there's a reunion. The survivors get together. And actually, it's interesting because during that reunion, the man whom Harper had witnessed told the story of his rescue and actually gave a testimony of his conversion recorded actually in a gospel track called, I Was John Harper's Last Convert. When I think about that, I'm going, whoa, this is amazing. Here's a person who realized he's going to die, but in the process, he cares so much more about everyone else and their souls. And I wonder if that's us or not. I think of the kindness of Jesus with his arms open wide, actually in the same context of Scripture. It's Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says to the crowd, come to me. Come. All who are, who are weak, who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me, I'll rescue you from your sin. Turn to me, trust in me as your Lord, as your Savior, as your King. I'll save you. There's some of you in this room, you know the truth of that. But you've never repented. What is holding you back? And whatever you figure out what that is, that's your God. That's who you serve. And maybe you say, well, I, don't, I want to live my life. Oh, okay, then you want to be the God of your own, of your own world, huh? But you're not. And so the truth is when a heart is humbled by the gospel, you go, I can't save myself. I need Christ. And so I'm looking at you today and saying, hey, are you saved? If you are, praise God and pursue him. But if you're not, uh, then you need to be saved. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. May God help us as we hear this message. Thank you. Let's pray.